This morning, it is my great pleasure to welcome back to Redeemer, Dr. Brian Chappell. In our denomination, uh, Dr. Chappell has served as the president of Covenant Theological Seminary for 20 years. He was the president when Pastor Nathan and I attended there. And then he became the senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois, where he served for 10 years. He's been married to Kathy for over 40 years, and together they have four children with six grandchildren. Recently, Brian was elected as the stated clerk of the PCA. The Lord has specially gifted Dr. Chapel in such a way as to be wonderfully effective in our denomination, especially during some turbulent times. He's also the founder and host of Unlimited Grace, which is a daily Bible teaching program. He teaches and preaches all over the world through this ministry. Dr. Chapel has authored numerous books. One of the books we have used here in our Sunday school class, a book on marriage called Each for the Other. Dr. Chapel's renowned book is, at least the book that he's most well known for, is on expository preaching. He wrote it over 30 years ago, about 30 years ago now, Christ-Centered Preaching, as it's called, and it's the, one of the standard books in seminaries across the country. In each generation, God raises certain people who have exceptional gifts to help strengthen His church, not just the PCA, but the whole of Christ's church, and Dr. Chapel is such a person. And on a personal note, Dr. Chapel was my preaching teacher, and he has been my mentor in preaching. No one has influenced my preaching as much as Brian Chapel. I'm sure Pastor Nathan would say the same. If you've derived any benefit at all from the pulpit ministry of Redeemer over these years, it is because of Brian Chapel's impact on the thinking and the practice of your pastors. Dr. Chapel, welcome back to Redeemer. We're so happy to have you here. We look forward to receiving the Word of God from your ministry. Your pastor, Tony, was a fine preacher before I ever met him. <laughs> so, if anything, I was refining a little bit, but uh, the Lord was gifting uh, prior to that. And, you know, it is such a, a blessing not only to join you in your beautiful facility and your wonderful worship, but to see my friend and somebody that uh, I was able to work with in the Lord's timing. You know, it's the, uh, one of the great blessings of my life to see those that the Lord used me in. You'll, same thing for you, Tony. And then you see the Lord use them in other places. So to be on uh, your home ground and see the people love you and you witness and preach so faithfully to them, I praise God for you and for the work that is happening here. He is faithful to the Word. It's the Word that you want me to turn you to, so I'll ask that you look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses... One and two, uh, as the apostle is turning from the doctrinal instruction to the practical instruction of this portion of his letter to the Romans, just verses one and two of Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good 
and acceptable and perfect. Ayman al-Zawahiri. You may not recognize the name until I remind you, 22 years ago was 9-11. And one year ago, at this time, the death of its mastermind, Ayman al-Zawahiri. And if the name doesn't ring a bell, it's because the names from that portion of the world have blended in our minds and memory. Bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. We almost don't want to hear it anymore because as an American society, something in us with so much conflict over so much time just wants to push away. Our national consciousness says, can anything good come out of the Middle East? To answer that question, Christian commentator James Dennison answers this way, can anything good come out of the Middle East? He writes, in recent years, so many Muslims have been coming to Christ that ministries have been placing ads in Egyptian newspapers and beyond asking this question, have you seen the man in white robes in your dreams? The ads are a consequence of a unique experience that is being shared by literally tens of thousands of Muslims in the Middle East. Exactly the same dream. We're appearing to those who have been taught that the followers of Jesus Christ hate them, comes a man in white robes named Jesus who beckons them, come to Him. And the consequence is that in the last 15 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ than in the last 15 centuries. Where is the fastest growing church in the world right now? Iran. Persecuted, underground, flourishing. Please do not fail to understand what the secular journalists do not see, do not say. It is that the Holy Spirit is at work phenomenally in the Middle East. Can anything good come out of the Middle East? Conversions of those who have been against Christ such as the world has not seen in our own lifetime. What's the message? First of all, let me tell you that I'm not exactly sure to tell you what dreams mean. <laughs> I am a Reformed Presbyterian. <laughs> I don't exactly know what to make of this. It does not fit my categories. But even if it does not, what I am certain of is that out of the pain and the shame and the darkness of the Middle East, Jesus comes and mercy flows. It is the old, old story. In 1948 and 1949, when Mao and the communists were casting the missionaries out of China, any reasonable person would have said, the gospel is done in that part of the world. And yet, today, this day, 
there will be more people worshiping Jesus in China than in the United States. Much smaller proportion of the population, but so large a population that more people will worship Jesus in China today than in the United States. Out of darkness and pain and shame, Jesus comes and mercy flows. It's the presence. It's the precedent from the very moment that Christianity was being established among the Jews who wanted to snuff it out at the time. Had you stood at the foot of the cross, you would have said, God, this is wrong. This can't be right. And you would have concluded that the ministry that was being advocated by that Jesus was done, and yet you know it was not. Within two centuries, the crucified Jesus would be named the one in charge of the church of the whole Roman world. Out of darkness and pain and shame, Jesus comes and mercy flows. It has been the Apostle Paul's point from the beginning of the epistle to the Romans. He goes all the way back to the darkness of humanity's beginning. And he points to Adam and the darkness that came into our world, the corruptions of sin that ultimately would touch not just creation but each of our hearts, and say, out of that darkness and pain and shame, God intended through Abraham and the miserable family that flowed to somehow bring mercy so that an apostle would confess about himself, the very one who tried to crush the movement of Jesus. And now, as a follower of Jesus, would even about himself confess, what I would do that I do not do. What a wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And his answer, thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height or depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Out of darkness and pain and shame, Jesus comes and mercy flows. And the apostle, trying to help us sense the power of that, says to those who were at Rome, who were hearing that long history of humanity, simply begins this portion of Scripture saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to hear the, the importance of that phrase, you have to understand where we are in the book of Romans. We've just moved from the doctrinal portion to now all the obligations. And the apostle will begin to spell out our individual responsibilities, our corporate responsibilities, our moral responsibilities, our civil responsibilities. There's so much to do. But before he gives any instruction in those things, he gives this backward glance and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice in all of these matters. But it is by the mercies of God. He's saying, before you do anything, <laughs> make mercy your motivation. 
Now, to consider the power of that, you have to consider what words could have gone in the place of these opening words of Romans 12. You know the words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What could he have said? I appeal to you, brothers, by the guilt you will feel if you don't. I appeal to you, brothers, by the rejection you will face if you fail. He says, none of that. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. Now, you may not hear the intention of these words and may not even be able to understand them entirely if you learn them the way that I did as a child. I was raised in a church, the vintage of some of you may recognize this experience. You're like me. I was raised in a church, evangelical, and very interested that its children would learn Scripture. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so we belonged to the BMA, the Bible Memory Association. And it was a wonderful thing if you're a child because every month you would get a new little booklet wonderfully illustrated with verses in it to memorize. And if you memorized enough, some of you know this, I can see me, if you memorized enough verses, you got a prize. I mean, I can remember with pride when I got my first glow-in-the-dark cross of Jesus, you know. But you know, it just does something to you when your scriptural performance is the basis of your reward. So I can say this verse, even now in the King James, because back in those days, everything was in the King James. So I said, memorize, I beseech you, therefore, see, we did a lot of beseeching in the King James Day, you know. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holding up to God, which is your reasonable service. Yeah, I just rattle it off. But even though everything I just said to you is correct, it is not what my heart heard. This is what my heart heard. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. Is that what it says? No. But isn't it what our hearts tend to hear? You be a good living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. Oh, friends, you must hear me. Holy and acceptable is not a statement of what you will become. It is a declaration of what you are. You are holy and acceptable to God. And we almost want to start debating the Apostle Paul. No, I, I can't be. I know my sin, I know my weakness, I know my failures, maybe even this very day. I, I, I can't possibly be holy and acceptable. How can I be holy and acceptable to God? Well, where did the verse begin? I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Not on the basis of what you have done, on the basis of God's mercy. 
this is the core of the gospel. Remember what Jesus did upon that cross. He took the penalty for your sin, all your sin put upon him, and all his righteousness put upon you. And now by faith in that great mercy, God is saying his righteousness becomes yours, not because of your merit, but your faith in his mercy. And when that mercy is what you're thinking about as you seek to serve him, as you seek to be a a mom or a dad or a faithful person at work or a faithful person in the church, it's that mercy that becomes the motivation and it, it begins to change you and strengthen you and enable you as mercy is the motivation. I mean, I can, I can think of it in very human terms. A, a winter ago, in our part of the country, an ice storm comes across, and uh, my son lives in Memphis, Tennessee, and they're not used to ice storms. So when the ice storm came across, they lost power, and they lost power in their house for days. And uh, when the temperature got down to about 40 you know, we got the call. Mom, Dad, can we come live with you for a few days? Well, sure, come. You know, so my son came with his wife and his daughter and his son and the dog. And things went fine for a few hours. And then, of course, the kids, you know, are not in their normal place. Normal, and so, you know, kind of antics and anxiety take over. And I must tell you, I so admire my wife because, you know, she just seems to have this bottomless tank of, of tenderness and patience. And when I'm running on empty, you know, she's still doing fine. I mean, you know, I'm the dad. So when my son's kids are messing up, I look at him and I say, serves you right, bud. This is what you did to us. You know. But my dear wife, she, she looks at the difficulties with our grandchildren and immediately the guilt starts coming. Oh, if we'd only done better with our children. Oh, they're repeating our error. Oh, I remember when I said such and such to our... I, why did we not do better? And her very tenderness makes her vulnerable to despair and spiritual failing. And so what she says she has had to do is in her mind before she will ever go to that file cabinet of painful memories of past failures, is she has said she will never open the drawer of that file cabinet unless it is with the key called mercy. God has been merciful to me, and he loves me, and he calls me holy and acceptable to him, not not because of my deserving, but because of his mercy. It's the great blessing of the gospel that is ours, that's supposed to give us strength, that's supposed to lift our heads and strengthen our arms so that we actually can do the things that we need to do in this day, despite the past. And it's not just for moms and not just for grandmoms. I mean, you can't be a leader in the church without needing to remember, right? I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what is being required of God. Because if it's not the mercies that are motivating you, something else will destroy you. Pastor Tony and I will know the name of Alexander White, famous Scottish missionary of a century ago. 
and there was a, a natural disaster that had come upon the community of Alexander White. So the ministers of the town gathered in his house to figure out what, what they would do to answer to the crisis. And after they'd made their plan and talked it through, most of the ministers left, except for one older man who lingered. Some of you have had a house guest that lingered. It became embarrassing. You know, why won't he go? And when it became too embarrassing, finally the older man spoke to Dr. White and he said, Dr. White, (laughs) now what word of comfort do you have for an old sinner like me? It was said as a jest, but Alexander White later wrote, it took my breath away. He was an old saint, but he had lost the comfort of the gospel. Alexander White said he didn't quite know what to do, so he simply rose from his seat. He took the hand of the older man sitting at a chair across the room, and he said, what word of comfort? Merely this. We have to deal with the one who delights in mercy. The words of the prophet Micah. Not much more was said. The older man left. But the next day, a note came. Dear Dr. White, those words that you spoke to me were strength to my soul. I had lost hope, but you reminded me of the heart of my Lord. I will never doubt him again. And the next time Satan throws my sin in my face, I will say, yes, it's all true. And you know not the half of it. But I have to deal with the one who delights in mercy. And so do I. And so do you. This is the blessing of the gospel. We have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. That's why he sent his son. That's why the son, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for your sake and for my sake. Because he would delight in showing mercy to those of us who did not deserve it, do not deserve it, have failed in so many ways, and still recognize mercy is ours, not because of our merit, but because we have put faith in his heart and the mercy that is there. And when we do that, it's, it's not just motivation. It is ultimately the power of the Christian life. You know that. That's verse 2. This same apostle who has told us about the mercy that motivates our sacrifice simply says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Now listen, you can't be in our kind of Reformed and Presbyterian circles very long until you hear this verse. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And usually renewal of your mind in our kind of highly literate circles gets translated as read good books. (laughs) Improve your intellect. Listen to Tony's sermons more. (laughs) It's all about kind of intellectual acquisition that give you a proper worldview. Now listen, there are clearly verses in Scripture that tell you to fill your mind with what is good and pure and lovely and noble. 
this is not one of them. What is this verse about? You have to understand that the Apostle Paul was beginning this argument about renewing our minds by remembering the mercy of God, not in this chapter. He had actually begun two chapters early when, when he is grieving for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Why is he grieving? He says, Romans 10, verses 2 and 3, he says, I bear them witness. Now, he's talking about his Jewish relatives, his own people. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Well, that sounds good. But not according to knowledge. Do you hear that? There's something wrong with their minds. What's wrong? Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What were they trying to do? Make themselves righteous before God. They're trying, God, have I done enough? Have I given enough? Have I suffered enough? When are you going to love me? How much more do I got to do? I, I, I go to the Passover every year. I sacrifice every day. I offer prayers. I follow the Ten Commandments. Paul's saying, do you not understand? You are trying to trophy your righteousness rather than put your faith in God's righteousness. And he says that's, that's ultimately like the world because if all you're trying to do is compete with other people, I mean, this is kind of Western culture on display right now, right? Oh, I'm, no, I'm not perfect. I, I'm, I'm not perfect. No, I know. Just better than those people. Why is God going to love me? Because I'm in this political party. Why is God going to love me? Because I'm doing better than those people whose doctrine is so poor. Because my kids do and their kids. Whether we're talking about church or work or politics, we're, we're in a game of comparison and competition. And the apostle says, don't be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your, you are not made right with God by anything in, while you were his enemies. Christ died for you. It is not your deserving. It is his mercy and grace. And, and when that mercy and grace is claimed by you, by faith, rather than thinking you have qualified for it, it will change you. You will not be conformed to the world any longer. Folks, this, this is not some sort of spineless sentiment. You know, well, preachers are supposed to talk about love and mercy. If the mercy of God truly captures your heart so that you're saying, through no deserving of my own, I am made right with God. The empty hands, I got nothing but trust in Him. If that's what you really believe, if that's deep in your heart, capturing your thoughts, then you begin to test and approve Everything you do, your words, your actions, your attitudes, by mercy instead of by your comparison merit. What difference will it make? It, it will call upon you to do the very hardest things in life for Christ's sake. What will that living sacrifice look like if mercy is that by which you're examining all your words and actions? He tells us. Verse 10, same passage, Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. But Lord, they don't deserve that. 
They messed up. They're not smart. They led us on an idiotic path. Why should I honor them? They don't deserve that honor. What does the Lord say? You know, you're right. But I delight in mercy. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. But Lord, don't you know what they did to our family? Don't you know what he said that hurt me so bad? Don't you know how we have suffered because of what that person or that group did to us? And the Lord said, yes, I do know. But I delight in mercy. It doesn't get any easier. Verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But Lord, they started it. They started it. Yes. But I delight in mercy. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves. But, Lord, that is not reasonable. Yes. But it is the reasonable service of those who have been claimed by mercy alone and not any merit of theirs. If you want to see how transforming is the mercy of God, how it takes us from being conformed to the world and transforms into something different. You have only to consider the testimony of the Apostle Paul himself when he concludes this long passage in Romans 15, 15 and describes himself. He says, because of the grace given to me, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In the priestly, that is the sacrificial service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. This is the Apostle Paul writing. When he was named Saul, remember, he held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. In his own testimony before the Jewish authorities, he would say later on, what did he do? I pursued the followers of Jesus Christ to death, imprisoned and tortured them. And now the same Paul is a minister of, believe me, this is transformation. He is willing to put aside position and, 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 and past understanding and, and totally live a transformed perspective in life because he says, the mercy of God claimed me. By grace I have been made a member of the family of God and through no merit of my own, he should have thrown me into the depths of hell. Instead, he claimed me and gave me ministry and is to tell others of this great mercy that I have received. This is not the, the religion of comparison and competition. This is the religion, this is the faith of humility before the mercy of God that is transforming people as they live for Him. As we begin to say, so great has His mercy been toward me that it becomes now the filter through which I look at my words, my actions, my attitude. Is that merciful, really? Is that responding with the mercy that I have received? After all, it is by the mercies of God that I present myself as a living sacrifice so that I'm not conformed to the world, but transformed and then testing 
and approving everything in my life to see that if it is according to the will of God as it has been described. And nothing will enable that except the mercy of God capturing you. But when it does, it's not just motivation. It is power to live for the one who loved you. I think of it in terms of a friend that Tony and I have, Paul Koistra, missionary leader in our denomination. And when he was young in career years, he actually worked as a social worker in the South in a school district that was very impoverished. And the struggle there was, of course, the education of so many children, trying to get them out of the difficulties of their parents. There was a young woman in that particular school district. Her name was Edie, and she ran track, so they called her Speedy Edie. She's good at track, but not good at school. They put her in the remedial reading program to kind of get her back up on grade level, but she became like so many students, identified as a problem reader. Now that that's my label, that's who I think I am. And she was like so many others. She got into the remedial reading program and became like an academic whirlpool. She never got back out. Others didn't get back out. But somehow, Edie began to score better. Ultimately, she got out of the remedial reading program that nobody else got. And now you know what all the administrators in the district do. They begin to focus on her teacher. What did you do different with Edie? Nothing. Would you give her different books? No. Uh, uh, different method? No. Different curriculum? No. Well, you must have done something different with Edie, said the teacher. Well, you know, Edie runs track. Yeah, we all know all about speedy Edie, <laughs> said the teacher. I used to go to her track meets, and I would cheer for her. <laughs> and that was the difference. <laughs> There was somebody who was for her. Do you recognize what the apostle is doing? I urge you by the mercies of God, the one who lifts your head, who gives strength to your arms, who enables you to do the things that seem absolutely impossible by human will as the mercy of God begins to capture your heart. It is transformative. It is changing. This mercy of God is ultimately what teaches us that we are acceptable to God, and that joy becomes our strength. It's what the apostles and prophets had said so long. The joy of the Lord becomes your strength. And when you know that, it, it changes you and actually enables you to live for the very God who's been so merciful to you. I, now listen, I know I'm in the Kansas City area, and I understand that you have a football team here called the Chiefs or something like that. And maybe they'll do okay this year. But can you just imagine if they're in the Super Bowl again, and in the last moments, they win the game. Can you just kind of hear the cheers? I mean, just deafening. But I want you to hear me, my friends. Those cheers are faint compared to 10,000 times 10,000 angels who this very moment proclaim over you, holy and acceptable is this child to you, Heavenly Father, not because of their merit, but they have put faith in your mercy. And the angels, as they are shouting, holy and acceptable, if you can hear them, are lifting your head, 
strengthening your hand, enabling you by joy to offer reasonable service to the God who calls you to sacrifice for His glory's name's sake. And it is not a huge sacrifice. It is actually the joy to serve that way. Recognize what we have been told. By mercy, He saves you. By mercy, He motivates you. By mercy, He enables you. By mercy, by mercy, by mercy. It is the echo of grace that makes our service sweet and our hearts strong. Oh, Christian, why do you do what you do? Do it because of the mercy. And the one who lifts your head will give strength to your arm because of the joy in your heart. Serve him, serve him, serve him. By the mercy, by the mercy, by the mercy. It is the joy of the gospel that will be your strength. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. So zealous to serve you, so joyful in their worship. Would you equip them by the gospel they know so well, but we all so easily forget. Not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the mercy that you have given, claimed not by our merit, but by faith in what you have done. May Jesus Christ be our confidence as we relish and rejoice in his mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.